Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 20, um, and I'll be starting at uh, 17, reading through to the end of 32. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the middle of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar. And it's lovely to be uh, back in Acts 20 for the last time in these three Sundays. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, uh, we do pray that you would show us wonderful things in your word, that you would convict us of truth. And we pray that you would set our lives individually and our church corporately on a path to holiness and joy. Amen. So, uh, another lockdown is in the offing, it seems. Yay! And what are you doing to prepare? Uh, stockpiling toilet roll? Subscribing to Netflix, Disney Plus and Amazon Prime Video? What about spiritually? What do you need to do if you're going to grow spiritually in the, in the next few months, whatever they throw, and who knows what they will throw at us? And what can you do if you want to be eternally useful to other people in the next few months? Well, the answer from Acts 20, that as individual Christians and as a church together, we all need to seek to get as much of this book, the Bible, as we possibly can for ourselves and to seek the opportunity to share it as widely as we possibly can with others. 
So we're in Acts 20. Um, as I said, we've been here for three weeks. And Paul is preaching his farewell sermon to the, ch- the leaders of the church in Ephesus, a church he spent three years. The only sermon preached to a church recorded in the book of Acts. Clearly, it's, it's a paradigm. It's, this is the kind of thing Paul said everywhere. Therefore, it's very important for us. And we saw last week that Paul taught that the fundamental attitude towards others in church for all of us should be humble service. It's the fundamental attitude. We're here to serve others, all of us. Now I want us to see that the fundamental activity at the heart of church is the teaching of God's word, preaching it, studying it, sharing it, and encouragement. Fundamental attitude, humble service, fundamental activity involves God's word. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you realize there is just a whole lot that the Apostle Paul did. Uh, He healed the sick, he cast out demons, he organized aid relief for the poor, he um, established networks of churches, did all sorts of things. But as he teaches the church how to stay healthy and how to keep growing after he's gone, he focuses on just one thing. He says, Central to church needs to be the word of God. Now, there are lots of passages in the Bible about the word of God. Lots and lots the Bible says about itself. So I really want us to focus in the next few minutes just on on some of the things that are particular emphases in, in Acts 20. And as we saw last week, it's not a sermon where there is one chunk on one thing and one on another. He sort of weaves the themes throughout. So we're, we're going to just work through looking at all it says as it teaches us about the word of God. The first thing is we're told to declare the truth of God's grace. Now, the striking thing, I think, is the sheer breadth of terms that Paul uses as he models doing all we can to speak the words of God. Look with me at verses 20 and 21, firstly. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Then again, look at verses 24 to 27. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So firstly, look at the the different words he uses to describe how he communicated God's word to them. Uh, Preach, verse 20, declare, verse 21, testify, verse 24, proclaim, verse 27, warn, verse 31. And then the second is the breadth of the content of his communication. It's the good news of God's grace in verse 24. It's the message of the kingdom, verse 25. It's about the will of God, verse 27. It's the truth, verse 30. And it's the word of his grace, lastly we saw in verse 32. Now, there's, in one sense, those things, they, they really cover a pair of things. It is the message of grace, of grace, because none of it, none of it relies on our efforts or worthiness. All that the gospel offers us, forgiveness, eternal life, adoption as God's children, all those things are a gift to us, achieved by Jesus and received for free by you and me. 
But the message is also the message of the kingdom, of God's will. The Jesus who saves is King Jesus. And as we receive his forgiveness, we gladly turn to live our lives trusting and obeying him, our king. Grace and the kingdom. The content of the communication. Finally, uh, he uses contrasting pairs of words to show the breadth of the contexts in which he communicated God's word. Verse 20, I taught publicly and from house to house. Verse 21, I've declared to, to both Jews and to Greeks the great division in the world. Verses 20 and 27, I preached anything that would be helpful to you, verse 20. And verse 27, I proclaim to you the whole will of God. I heard Paul's attitude to, to God's word in Acts 20 summarized this way. All possible truth in all possible settings to all possible people. That's what it is. All possible truth in all possible settings to all possible people. I was given a, a nice watch a few years ago. Not expensive enough to be worth burgling our house for, in case anybody has those thoughts, or mugging me on the way back from the park this morning. But it's not a watch I wear every day. It's for special occasions only. Apparently church isn't special enough for it, <laughs> looking at my wrist this morning. Uh, but the Bible's not like that. It's a special occasion book that we get out once a week for church. It, the Bible's more like your smartphone. Uh, you take it everywhere with you. You use it all the time, and you turn to it for everything you need. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? The Bible's more like that. So in a healthy church, God's word is, is preached at the heart of our Sunday gathering. It's also studied uh, midweek in our discipleship groups. It's defended in discussions with friends and colleagues who, who don't share our Christian convictions. And it's enjoyed as we read it prayerfully for ourselves to deepen our relationship with Jesus. It is central to everything we are and everything we do. And so I guess the question very simply is, as I read through Paul's description this morning, is what am I doing to ensure I get this breadth of nourishment, the nourishment we all need? You see, the truth is that what is central to our lives is it tends to be seen in, in what we do day to day. As Christians, we know that God's word is central. The question is, does that translate into my day-to-day -day habits and routines? Look at the sheer breadth of the ways that Paul says we should be engaging with God's word. All possible truth in all possible settings to all possible people, but also by all possible people. You see, don't switch off because you think the Bible is a, well, that's the tool for ministers for professional Christians. The New Testament actually calls all of us to speak God's word to one another. Uh, you'll see on the screen uh, a bunch of verses. Uh, I'll just read them quickly. Romans 15, 14, instruct and correct one another. Ephesians 4, 15 and 29, speak the truth in love. Build one another up. Colossians 3, 16, teach and admonish one another with God's word. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and Hebrews 3, 13, encourage one another. Hebrews 10.24, spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then another one would be 1 Peter 3.15, which tells us we should be explaining the gospel, all of us, to those who don't know Jesus, not just the professional Christians. All of us should be involved in, in using God's word to encourage and build up others. Now, look at the other end so that what's the result of all of this interaction with God's word? Well, the result, verse 21, 
I've declared to both Jews and Greeks they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. Repentance and faith. Repentance that as the light of God's word reveals the ugliness and the sin of my heart, turn away from those things. Faith. Turn instead to trust in Jesus for salvation and to obey him in all of my life. That's the result of hearing God's word. But perhaps the most striking thing here is the result of speaking God's word, which is innocence. Innocence. Verse 26. Therefore I declare to you, Paul says, that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. It's a striking thought. Do you see, Paul is saying he's not innocent until something happens. He's not talking about his innocence before God. Jesus' death has paid for his sins. He's talking about something else here. But he says, until he's done something, he's guilty. Until he's spoken the word of God, he's guilty. What does he mean? Well, he's quoting something that God said to the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years beforehand. If you look at Ezekiel 33 later today, you'll see that in verses 1 to 9, God told his prophet, you're to be like a watchman in a city. And I want you to warn God's people that they're behaving wickedly and that my judgment is coming. And he says, look, if as a prophet you warn the people, look, you're behaving wickedly and God is going to judge you. If you do that and the people don't listen, well, they will be justly punished for their sins, but you'll be innocent because you have warned them. He says, but if you fail to warn them, well, they'll still be justly punished for their sins, but but their blood is really on your hands. You'll be responsible. And Paul says, look, I'm innocent because I have declared to you guys the whole will of God. In other words, he didn't hold back from uncomfortable truths. He he didn't avoid the things that in multicultural, sophisticated Ephesus might get him branded a bigot. He didn't avoid those things that he thought, oh, I can see some people getting really angry if I say this. They might even leave the church over it. No, he knew that he himself and his listeners would one day stand before God and give an account for what he had done with the knowledge of God's truth. And look, all those who have some responsibility to teach need to check whether we go quiet on the uncomfortable bits, the unpopular bits of the Bible, whether we somehow just always avoid them in our teaching program because we don't want to cause controversy or offense in our culture. Well, now, most of you uh, here in the building or watching online, I guess you you don't have... um, a full-time job teaching the Bible, and you don't have the opportunity to, to teach the whole will of God to most people. But what about the heart of the matter? The heart of God's will is that we turn from our sinful rejection of him and put our trust in Jesus for salvation and eternal life. That's the heart of God's will. And all of us can share that. Well, okay, at what point do I become responsible for somebody else? I don't know. The Bible doesn't draw those kind of lines for us. But surely the more I know somebody, the more time I spend with them, the greater my responsibility are to share the heart of God's will, the truth about Jesus and the salvation he offers with them. I am a steward of my relationship with others. I'll give an account to God for it one day. Now, if you're not a Christian, can I say, don't be surprised that those annoying Christian friends keep trying to tell you about Jesus, even when you've politely or not so politely told them, I'm just not interested. 
It's because they love you and they are responsible to you. Okay, so declare the truth of God's word. But secondly, beware the distortions of false teachers. To be a church that is faithful to the word of God, we need to do more than just teach it in every possible setting to every possible person. We also need to protect the church from those who teach false things. Now, I have to say, if there's one thing I can guarantee will get me um, an uncomfortable conversation after church, it's if I ever stand up and say something is wrong or say that a book or a, or a particular speaker is actually misrepresenting what the Bible says. Always there'll be pushback or resistance. And so we need to look carefully at verses 28 to 31, where Paul warns the Ephesian elders and us that there is a genuine danger, not a theoretical one, that churches will face and will need to act on about false teaching. Verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, step back for a minute. Does that not strike you as a bit strange? Look through the whole of this sermon, and the one thing Paul really warns them about is people who don't quite teach the truth. It will not be very many years before Christians are literally thrown to be eaten by lions and used as torches for Nero's after-dinner parties. But Paul never, hardly ever in the New Testament warns about the danger of persecution. Instead, we find throughout his letters as here, the thing that has him in tears with concern and warning people day after day is the threat, the danger that false teaching represents. Why is that? I mean, surely Nero in first century Rome or Pol Pot in 20th century Cambodia is far more dangerous to the church than, well, just somebody who, who questions the traditional teaching of the Bible. I think there are two reasons Paul warns about false teaching rather than persecution again and again and again. Well, first, the church actually, history tells us, is likely to thrive as to be destroyed by, by persecution. From the Roman Empire to modern-day China, it's what happens. I was reading just this last week about the church in Mozambique. In the late 70s, the government stated its aim was to create the first truly Marxist state in Africa and to eradicate the church as it went. And instead, under oppression, the church went from, well, a struggling church numbering in the thousands to a vibrant church of millions. Happens again and again. So the first reason is that, well, as often as not, the church thrives on, under persecution. But secondly, perhaps more importantly, no one is tempted to take the danger of persecution lightly. But again and again, in church after church, we fail to take the danger of false teaching seriously and suffer the consequences. I was reading a history of warfare, I'm that interesting. And one of the striking things is in almost every conflict in history, more soldiers die from poor hygiene than enemy action. Two-thirds of all deaths in the American Civil War were disease rather than battle. 
In the Spanish-American War, seven times as many people died from diseases in training as died from combat. Seven times as many. Why? Well, it was just so much harder to get the soldiers to take the threat seriously. I mean, a bullet is an obvious threat. And so you tell a soldier, duck, or you'll be hit by a bullet, and they duck. But a tiny unseen bug, uh, so easy to ignore, and so nobody bothers to wash their hands or to take hygiene seriously. Well, Christians are well aware that a dictator who bulldozes churches and bans Bibles, that's a big threat, and we we take it seriously, and we know it's going to be uh, a challenge to our faith to stand up under pressure. But a quirky book that suggests God is too loving to, to judge anyone, or a Christian speaker advocating a softer line on sexual ethics, We think, look, I'm hardly going to stop trusting Jesus just because I read a book which, you know, not everything in it is is bang on. But poor spiritual hygiene in church, not preserving the purity of the word of God, is just as lethal as poor physical hygiene in a military camp. No wonder then that Paul depicts them as wolves. The impact of false teaching is not well, some of the sheep get a little bit confused. Some of the sheep are not quite as clear as they could otherwise be. No, 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 it's wolves. Some of the sheep are torn apart limb from limb, destroyed. Now, there's lots we could draw out from these verses. You learn about the impact, the intention, and the origin of false teaching. But perhaps the most important thing for us is the nature of false teaching. Look at verse 30. Even from your own number, will arise, uh, men will arise and will teach blatant heresy. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. Not many Christians would be drawn away by someone who says, we should all worship Satan and sacrifice humans. Not many of us are likely to be suckered by that. It's not blatant heresy these dangerous false teachers teach. Just truth. Distorted a little. There's a reason that when you stand up in court to give evidence, the oath is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because a partial truth, or truth mixed with a bit of lie, ends up being no truth at all. The most dangerous, destructive lies are those that are closest to the truth because they're the hardest to spot and the easiest to believe. I think of people I know who were suckered in by teachers who told them, God wants you to be happy. And if you have faith, he really, he'll bless you with the things you long for. He gave you those dreams and desires. Yes, so close to the full truth. God does want you to be happy. God did give you your desires. But... The Bible never says you'll have everything you want right now and that all your desires are pure. And the tragedy is that when the dream job or the dream spouse or the dreamed of healing doesn't materialize, people almost never turn in anger against the false teacher who told them they could have these things. Instead, they grow bitter and disillusioned with the God they think has promised them and their faith is destroyed. I've seen it happen so often. And so verse 31 says, be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day with tears. 
Paul faced down mobs who stoned him half to death. Paul faced down the Roman Empire with all its power to kill. But the thing that had him in tears with anxiety, the thing that had him warning people day after day and night after night, it was the danger of false teaching destroying the church. And we are fools if we are blasé about things that Paul was terribly anxious about. We are fools if we take lightly what Jesus and Paul took seriously. We are fools if we treat wolves as if they're just, well, slightly different sheep. I guess practically that means have the humility to recognize that no matter how mature you are, any of us can be taken in. Any of us. So be willing to be challenged about what you read or listen to. Be willing to be shown that it's not really representing what the Bible teaches. It's this word, God's word, that's the truth. We weigh everything against it. Teaching that distorts the truth is a real danger that distorts real lives. And we must not take it lightly. But the, the final paragraph of Paul's sermon finishes with a note of great hope as he returns to the theme of the word. Verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. A reminder of why the Bible should be at the heart of all we do. See, these words, the words of the Bible, are not mere words. When we listen to these words, when we speak these words, well, they have power to build us up in God and to keep us for eternal life. Now, you may not think that you have any particular skill teaching God's word, any great gifts. Well, that's okay, because the power doesn't lie in you. Do you see? He doesn't say, now I commit you to God and to your great skill in teaching his words. It's and to the word of his grace, which can build you up. The power lies in the word. It's gets to 8 p.m. tonight, it'll be dark. Yay, winter's coming. If I ask one of the interns, oh, it's getting a bit dark in here. No one's going to be able to see, uh, see their Bibles. Can you uh, bring light? I'm not expecting them to, to radiate light from themselves by their own magnificent, radiant personality. I just expect them to go to the back and press a button. And the electricity will provide the light. When we, when we turn to God's word, we turn on the electricity. We tap into a power not our own, but that's easily accessible to all of us. So trust in God's word to build up others, but also to build up yourself. Trust in God's word. Now, I don't mean that um, every conversation after church should only take place in Bible quotations, preferably in ancient thee and thou language to give it extra power. But you know, don't be weird. But seek to tap into God's power, God's words, whenever we can. Look, any of us can encourage somebody. I can encourage somebody with my kind words when they're depressed or anxious. But when I turn to God's word, where his word, it refreshes the soul and brings joy to the heart. My words can't do that. I can challenge and rebuke a friend who is drifting dangerously into sin. But God's words cut to the heart and bring back the sinner. Now, I can offer my wisdom about family life or work decisions. 
Not many people seem to ask for it, but I can offer it. But when I teach God's word, it's the maker's instructions, the heart of all wisdom. Now, I can explain logical arguments for the existence of God and the resurrection of Jesus. There are plenty of them. But when I share God's word with people, well, they have the power to bring the spiritually dead to life. So if you've uh, started tuning into church recently in the last few months and you are hoping to, to go along somewhere, find out more about this Jesus, choose a church where God's word is at the very heart of everything that happens, where you can see that they're teaching what God's word says and where the purity of that word matters enough for them to sometimes warn against false teaching. And work at understanding it yourself, all of us, so that you're better able to speak words of life, of power, of comfort, and of truth to others. It doesn't matter how familiar and, and competent and capable you feel this morning. Let's just make a commitment that we'll work that little bit harder so that week by week we get better able to. And remember, these words will only be at our fingertips if we're saturated in God's word. The more it's central to my daily routine and habit to feed on God's word, the better I'll be able to encourage and comfort and build up and offer life through God's word to others. So make time for God's word central, whether it's lockdown or open out that happens in the next few months. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power, its beauty, its richness, and its truth. And we pray, Father, that for all of us, our lives would, uh, would be more marked by taking in your word with great delight and reverence. And our lives would be more shaped around the desire to serve others with the life-giving power of your word. We ask this for the health of our church and the health of ourselves and for your glory. Amen.